this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. And thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. Now, are we eating properly? Are you eating properly? On magnesium, for example, about 85 to 90% of us are not getting the RDA. Vitamin D, 70 to 80% are not getting enough vitamin D in their diet. Okay, you get a bit from sunshine. It seems that many of us just aren't. Dr. Max Gowland tells us just how bad our diets are, according to government collected data and offers some potential solutions. Then, a rather stark message from Dr Sarah Jarvis. Your next poo could save your life. The topic is bowel cancer, and more specifically, screening for the disease. Both of these are important topics, relevant to you especially if you're over 50. So please do stay tuned for a great show. Thank you. So my first guest today is Dr. Max Gowland and the topic is our diet and supplements and if we need them or not. My first question to him was, what sort of doctor are you? Yeah, yeah, six years at Nottingham. So that's uh, definitely a PhD doctor, not a GP, I'm afraid. But uh, I think when it comes to nutrition, I think, um, unfortunately, the GPs have so much to do and they have so little training in nutrition that they're really not experts in nutrition. I mean, hopefully I can add a little bit more value uh, because I have studied nutrition for quite some time now. Good. So your PhD is not in English, I'm assuming. What's your PhD in? (laughs) My PhD is in biochemistry and chemistry and peptide antibiotics, to be uh, precise, many years ago. I I have come across people uh, selling supplements, call themselves doctor, and I think if you dig a little bit deeper, they have a PhD um, in history or something like that. So... Um, I do like to ask people <laughs> what their expertise is. And what I find actually is those people that do have the qualifications, do have the expertise, have absolutely no problem saying what it is. Um, I better tell you, actually, I'm, I'm not a medical person at all. Well, actually, I'm a civil engineer. Uh, so my, my knowledge of uh, supplements is um, man in the street, general knowledge type uh, knowledge, really. Um, and so with that, I, I tend to come at it sometimes. And, you know, you can put me right on this. I tend to think, well, look, if we just eat properly, we don't need to have supplements. And, you know, when I go into London and sit on the tube, I look at the adverts on the tube and it's not unknown for three out of five adverts to be for supplements. And I think, you know, come on, let's just try and eat properly. And we don't have to prop up this multi-million pound industry let's just eat our greens um and we'll all be fine so i I guess kind of the first question is where you can address my thought on that tell me i'm wrong if you like but also just how good or how bad is the average diet you're you're both right and wrong (laughs) that's the interesting thing here um, you're right in that you, if you eat a perfect, theoretical, perfectly balanced diet, et cetera, et cetera, 
you will get probably most of the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients, uh, carbs, fats, proteins that you need. But very, very few of us really do that on a daily basis. That is the problem. And I'm one of them. I mean, I take my health very seriously. But there are some days that I don't eat a sprig of broccoli, for example. And I know that's unhealthy. Uh, and some days I might have a couple of bits of chocolate, which are okay. But if you overdo it, you can be in trouble. So unfortunately, the vast majority of us are not eating that perfect theoretical diet. Now, um, the dietitians. Uh, who are experts, uh, will tell us that, you know, we should get a balanced diet and nobody needs supplements. I'm afraid that's a little bit old fashioned now. I think people need to understand that they're highly likely not eating that perfect diet. Um, to give you an idea, um, certainly if you look at the NDNS, the NDNS, National Diet Nutrition Survey, which is done every year in the UK, but it's done across the world, 75% uh, of us are failing to eat even that five five a day in terms of fruit and veg. Uh, that's not good. You're going to be missing out on lots of really healthy uh, vitamins and minerals. Um, I've taken a lot of time out studying the NDNS across the world, but certainly I focused on the UK, Mike. And I've looked at scientific publications that have been published 20 years ago. And I've also looked at data only uh, one or two years old. And I can tell you that the vast majority of us are not getting anywhere near the RDA. That's the recommended daily allowance, the target. That's the minimum target we should be aiming for in vitamins and minerals. You know, I have a graph um, here, which I can just quickly show you. You won't be able to see the data, but it's quite, quite, um, quite extraordinary how, how bad it is. In fact, I haven't got the graph here. Um, no, I haven't got it here at all. That's right. um, I've it's, put it somewhere it's mostly else. It's mostly radio anyway, so you, you can describe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, for example, magnesium. I know that if you take the over 50s, and they're the people who need more supplement help than most people, if you take the over 50s, which is what I tend to focus on because I'm interested in longevity and lifespan and health span, um, on magnesium, for example, about 85 to 90% of us are not getting the RDA. Vitamin D. 70 to 80% are not getting enough vitamin D in their diet. Okay, you get a bit from sunshine. But again, as you get older, we don't make vitamin D particularly quickly in our skin. Again, many people don't really understand that. Um, take vitamin C. Everyone thinks they get enough vitamin C uh, drinking you know, orange juice, etc. Although a lot of oranges, a lot of orange juice are full of sugar. Um, but you know, even 33, 34% of us are not getting the RDA of vitamin C. And that is data. That's not me reading Dr. Oh. Google or the daily rag. That is real gonna, data. I was, and so I could I go on and on about, about these deficiencies. Yeah. So this so this data is is this is government collected bona fide data. Is it? It's public health England data. Yes, public health England run these things every year. Um and, and it's published people uh, they, i tend to look at what, what's the what's the size of the sample yeah, uh, it's about two and a half thousand people so it's pretty big okay it's so pretty big i mean what happens just so people know is that dietitians or technicians are sent into people's homes they get people to weigh their food and to fill in food diaries all that data after three or four days goes back to the lab the technicians then tap on the computers they work out the data 
And they can work out pretty accurately from uh, data tables, which tells them how many vitamins and minerals that are in foods. They can work out exactly how many micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, people are actually eating. And they can compare that with the recommended daily target. And then they can work out the percentage of people who are deficient, i.e. not getting that, that those targets. So it is real data, this. Right. Okay. Well, we've got to start somewhere. And uh, this is the data we've got. And there isn't any other better data. And it sounds like it, it's it's pretty robust. Um, so, right. So let, let's take that as, um, as fact, then, that vast numbers of, of us aren't eating properly for whatever reason. Now, this is probably a bit of an unfair question, but is that the case the world over or is this specifically more for the UK? This data probably... No, it's UK. a great question. Uh, it, it is the world over, probably worse in the West than anywhere. Um, but um, I've looked at the NDNS data, this Public Health England data, in other countries. Obviously, it's not run by Public Health England. It's run by their own local public health government uh, people. And it is generally pretty poor throughout the world, to be honest. And obviously, you will get certain countries where it's a bit worse with certain vitamins and other countries, it's worse with other vitamins or minerals. But generally speaking, the vast majority of people are not getting anywhere near the RDA on many of these micronutrients. And of course, if you're not getting that RDA, don't forget the RDAs were set many years ago, and some of them are a little bit low, and some countries have much higher RDAs, higher targets than the UK. But if you're not getting that RDA on a daily basis, Mike, you are going to put yourself at risk of chronic ailments, maybe later in life, and maybe even chronic disease. Um, so getting that daily dose of micronutrients is really important, preferably in your food. But as I said, we're not doing that, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you mentioned a couple of times age has been a key factor in this. So as, so I'm interested in this. Look, I'm 56. I don't know how old you are, but you know I'm I'm in the over 50s bracket, which you've mentioned. Do we tend to? What happens? Do we get lazier in our diet? Do we get less good at processing what we do eat, so we get the vitamins and minerals out of it, or need more of these things? What, what's what's is, is it more of a problem the older we get? Yeah, it is, generally. Uh, I think one of the main concerns is absorption. The aging gut does not particularly absorb vitamins well. Um, so you might take X in, but you might only absorb half X. Um, so uh, getting the micronutrients to absorb is important. Uh, so again, if you're taking a supplement, you should be looking for additional technologies which help the aging gut absorb, things like uh, black pepper extract, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et um, so that's a but big it's one. It's as simple as that. Would, would, our bodies aren't quite as good as extracting what we need out of the food. No, it's not as simple as that. That's just okay. one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Vitamin D. You know, to me, that's one of the master vitamins for immunity, for bone health, for muscle health, and a lot more. Uh, vitamin D. We don't get any in our food virtually. I mean, it, we, we have very little. You, you can't get enough. D in your food. So you rely on sunlight. And of course, you know, there's no sunlight around right now, or very little. Um, and as you get a bit older, even if you go into the sunlight, I will have to go into the sunlight perhaps three times longer than my kids, because my aging skin does not absorb, sorry, does not synthesize or make vitamin D in the skin fast yeah. enough. I was about to make um, a cheap shot of something like as we get older, parts of our body are more exposed 
Um, <laughs> oh yeah, tell me about it. You, you have less hair than me, so you, you know to some extent it's not all bad. You, you know, you. It's not all bad. Absolutely right. Too much testosterone, Mike. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, take I, another I Mike. Interrupted you there, and you were no, talking okay. about important stuff. Uh, another one was B twelve, vitamin B twelve, an essential uh, vitamin needed for cognition. Uh, red blood cell formation and a few other things needed for energy, of course, as well. Uh, B12, we don't absorb B12 particularly well as we get older because about a third of us have much less stomach acid than we used to have. If you've not got enough stomach acid, you can't actually rip the B12 out of the meat or the fish because that's where you get B12. You get B12 from the meat and fish. Um, you don't get it anywhere else. acid. What, so that the acid is less acidic or there's just not enough of it? There's not enough of it. Um, we have hydrochloric acid in our stomach, um, very low pH, very acidic, very aggressive, and it helps to digest lots of our food. Uh, and B12 in particular, which exists in protein in food, fish, meat, etc. You can't actually take that B12 out of the protein particularly effectively. You need hydrochloric acid to do that. And as we get older, we just don't have enough. And then, of course, a lot of us will be on medication. And a lot of medications tend to slow down the, um, the uh, production of hydrochloric acid, things like PP, PPI inhibitors uh, and antacids and, and, a, and a lot more. So there are multiple reasons why, you know, we're just not getting enough of those micronutrients. All right. Are we just sort of living longer than we were designed to i mean <laughs> this is obviously a good thing because you know we are we are living longer um but you know people used to die in their 40s and 50s not that long ago yeah about 100 years ago the average uh expectation was about 45 years it's now um it's now 79 for men and 82 for women um it started to level off, and in the U.S., it's actually come down a year, I think, um, and I can't explain why. Um, but, yeah, you could argue we're not designed to live beyond maybe 80, although there's a huge amount of research, and, of course, this is something that I tend to read about on a daily basis, about longevity and lifespan. Mm -hmm. There are many, many people, many top scientists around the world who do believe that we can live massively in excess of 100 years, um, maybe 130, 150. Um, and there'll be other scientists who say that's absolute nonsense. There's certainly a kind of cell program, cells are programmed to die at a certain time. Um, and there are certain supplements that can not extend that, but certainly help clean up the mess of dead cells. There's something called quercetin or quercetin, for example which is a, it's a supplement that I personally take, funnily enough. Um, I take it on a daily basis because as we get a bit older, um, we tend to have cells which die, and that's fine, and then they get replaced, but not particularly effectively, hence aging. But also there are cells that are slowly dying, and unfortunately they stick around far too long. They're trying to die. They can't quite die. They're called zombie cells in the trade, zombie cells right. or senescent cells to be technical. And those senescent cells, if they stick around too long, can produce nasty things called cytokines that can produce inflammation. And then that can spread to other cells. And that can give rise to chronic inflammation 
and therefore produce other zombie cells. That is a big factor of aging. And there's a lot of people who believe that if that can be inhibited, it can actually help longevity. So how does it show itself? Is, it, is that, that sounds like rheumatism to me, like joint pain, stuff like that. Well, it's interesting to say that a lot of joint pain is actually inflammation. Um, you know, inflammation is uh, a problem which we have in our entire bodies. You know, inflammation, which is what the scientists call oxidative stress, um, is, you know, is caused by a whole range of problems. If we don't sleep well, we're prone to more inflammation. If we're not eating the right diet, we're much more prone to inflammation. So some of these micronutrients and some of the other things like omega-3 fish oil extracts, for example, they can actually, they've been proven to actually help inflammation, for example. And there are lots of micronutrients, vitamins, that are genuine antioxidants, which help this oxidative stress um, uh, wane and therefore help inflammation. Uh, and keep it at bay. So things like selenium, vitamin E, uh, vitamin C, zinc, and one or two others. So getting this anti-inflammatory uh, health is uh, from micronutrients can be done, but don't overdo it, of course. You know, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Let's look at that uh, for a moment, because I have heard this phrase. Yeah. You know, you can take, you can take supplements, you can take vitamins, but you're just going to get expensive pee. Now, so presumably, if you take too much, it's just going to go straight through you, cost you a lot of money and go down the toilet. I've heard that a lot. And uh, there's some truth in it. There's also some nonsense in it as well. Um, yes, if you take huge amounts of, let's say, vitamin C, for example, I mean, the RDA for vitamin C is about 80 milligrams. Um you probably don't need a great deal more than that. Um, but obviously you can get lots of products where you're taking a thousand milligrams or even 2000 milligrams. Yeah. A lot of that will be wasted without a doubt. Um, but there will be other vitamins and minerals where you're not getting good absorption um, or you're low in terms of intake, things like vitamin D. Vitamin D is a classic again, where, you know, we're not getting enough. You know, the vast majority of us are clearly deficient or at least insufficient in vitamin D. Um, so, you know, not getting enough vitamin D can be very unhealthy. That can affect a lot of, uh, a lot of health, uh, parts of the health. Um, so, you know, I'm a great believer in this supplementation. We do need that additional help from supplements in my view. Yeah. Um, as, as, more specifically, as we get older, um, this is probably a very horrible question, but I'll ask it anyway. Can you sort of give details of some of the ailments that, in your experience, you know, we might get? So you, you, you mentioned joint, joint pain and rheumatism that you think could be allayed either by having a perfect diet or by taking uh, supplements. Yes. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I can see the chart that I use sometimes in presenting when I go around uh, to shows presenting on this topic. Um, yeah, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of things that are very different as we enter our 50s, 60s, 70s compared to our 20s. For example, we're much more tired. We're much more prone to things like cataracts. We're much more prone to, unfortunately, cancers. We're much more prone 
to inflammation and joint pain. We're losing muscle mass at about one or two percent per annum and, and hence strength. Um, we don't absorb micronutrients particularly well. We can't absorb B12. Um, we have cognition problems, perhaps. Dementia sets in with some of us. So, yeah, there are a lot of problems as we get older. Now, supplements are not going to stop those, but supplements will certainly help alleviate some of those chronic ailments. You know, there is a vast amount of scientific literature all over the place in very learned places like PubMed, for example, where there are peer-reviewed proper scientific papers, um, basically demonstrating clearly how certain nutrients can actually help certain ailments. Um, there are also lots of papers showing that they don't help as well. And this is one of the problems with supplements is that there's basically two types of study. One is what's called an epi study or an epidemiological study, which is where people are followed over a few years and they have a diet and people understand, you know, the scientists understand what they're on. And then they look at the ailments and the disease. And if there's disease where people are not taking enough vitamin X, then clearly that vitamin, you know, is, is a problem or, or that lack of vitamin is a problem. That's an, epi that's an association study or an epi study. And it's only indicative, but it's not it doesn't prove causation. Then there's what they call the RCTs, the randomized control tests, mm -hmm. where you have a placebo group who don't take X and you have a, a test help. group. And you can, yeah, and you can actually you know, do a proper experiment. But it's very, very difficult to control. And some experiments are well-designed. Some experiments are really quite poorly designed. But nevertheless, they're still published. And that can cause total confusion. And then you get the ultimate gold standard called the meta-analysis. This is where a lot of the trials can be put together in one mega-analysis or meta-analysis to be uh, to be to be scientifically correct. And then you get a much better overview in terms of whether something works or doesn't work. Okay. All right. So can you pick on and you, you mentioned a few sort of samples. Can you pick on uh, some specific examples of, you know, you tend to have, uh, I don't know, loss of muscle mass. If you take this vitamin, it's been proven that it will help, that sort of thing. Are, are examples that are as concrete as that around? Yes, there, there are lots of examples. And, you know, I can see some of the technical trials in my mind as we speak. You know, take muscle mass, which is one of the most serious declines in health. You know, there is a direct relationship between muscle mass and mortality, believe it or not. I, I can show you the scientific paper after the discussion. But is it it, holding is, on is to it the muscle mass that you've got. Say again? Is it because it leads to frailty and, yeah. you know, and falls and all the rest of it? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And frailty is something that you really do not want to go down. We all become frailer as we get older, clearly. But you can anti-age to some extent. You can fight against it. Yeah. Um, take the muscle mass. And, and I know we might be talking separately on sarcopenia, which is age-related muscle loss, maybe in another podcast. But um, if you take uh, the average person average person loses about one or two percent muscle mass every year after the age of about 45. So by the time you're 65, still pretty young, you've lost a quarter 
of your muscle mass. That's called sarcopenia, um, age-related muscle loss. And it's something which isn't talked about a lot, but I think everybody gets it. They see their granddad or their older dad, you know, withering away, or they come out of hospital and they've lost a stone and a half or whatever. That's sarcopenia. And it is very, very unhealthy indeed. And there's a lot you can do. One is exercise. We all know about that. Exercise does definitely help fight against age-related muscle loss, but also taking in a decent amount of protein. And protein's a controversial topic. Protein isn't a micronutrient, it's a macronutrient. Um, and again, this goes back to how old-fashioned some nutrition can be. If you take the World Health Organization um, uh, RDA, recommended daily allowance of protein, it's, it's what they call 0.8 grams of protein per day per kilogram of body mass. If you put that into normal daily terms, that's about 60 grams of protein a day that we need. If you look at the latest science, though, and I'm talking, again, peer-reviewed published papers, they're saying that's nonsense and it's massively out of date. What we really need is at least 100 grams per day, especially as we get older. I need more protein than my sons who go to the gym. It sounds counterintuitive, but I do, and I take it because I know about it, I, I understand it, and I read about it. Um, so taking up enough protein on a daily basis can help massively uh, and can you protect get against... with, with supplements, or do you just have to eat some steak or eat a load of lentils? Uh, either way. You'd, right. you'd have to have a lot of lentils to get 100 grams, I tell you. But, yeah, you could eat, you could eat some steak, uh, certainly, it, but there's a lot of anti-meat. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people who don't eat meat or... Mm. They, they, you know, they, they want to keep their meat intake down to maybe once a week. Um, a supplement can certainly help. You can get some very high quality protein supplements. Um, and if you are looking for a protein supplement, I would look for something which has additional micronutrients in there as well. It's no good having a pure whey protein if you can't, if you then have to take multiple tablets of, you know, vitamin D and vitamin C. Um, so I would look for a, a protein shake but with additional micronutrients if possible. Yeah. So, I mean, this is interesting because I'm, I am a pretty regular, normal, boring type person. And like a lot of people, I, I, I am trying to eat slightly less meat. I mean, I'm not a vegetarian by any means, but, you know, two or three days might be vegetarian in the week. And the reason for that, that I'm doing that, is I'm thinking it's healthier and it's good for the planet. Um and it's actually, it's a bit cheaper at the moment as well. So, you know, there's three, what I see as good reasons uh, for, for doing it. I suspect there's a lot of people like me, because as I say, I'm nothing special. I'm just, you know, Joe, Joe Public. Um, and I'm, but I might be doing myself a bit of a disservice. Yeah, I mean, food first, obviously, is the preference. But getting 100 grams of pure protein I'm talking about every single day is difficult. I mean, what does 100 grams of pure protein look like? It's about four chicken breasts, uh, to put it into real food terms. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to eat four chicken breasts. Um, okay, you get maybe four or five grams from a slice of bread and your lentil soup. You might get another eight or nine grams if you're lucky. It's difficult to get to 100. Um and that's why certainly I supplement and I advise anyone else my age uh, to supplement because you're getting that goodness, that protein. And you need protein because protein not only builds muscle or helps maintain muscle, but it also needed to make new enzymes. 
uh, and lots of other things, and even hormones. Um, some hormones need protein, for example. So protein is an absolutely essential macronutrient. You can do without most fats. You can do without most carbs. You cannot live without protein because protein is the only macro with a nitrogen atom. We have to have nitrogen. Um, without nitrogen, we're not alive. It's as simple as that. So protein is a really key macro. Okay. We've spoken about lots of positives uh, in, in uh, supplements and what have you. And indeed, in some instances, you know, not just positives, uh, necessities, it, it would appear. Let's just touch a bit on maybe some of the dangers, because uh, you did actually mention it earlier in the discussion. But if you are taking other medication and uh, then you, you start taking some supplements, can the supplements kind of get in the way of this medication working or block it from working, this kind of thing? That's a good, that's a really good point. Um, <clears throat> I, I regularly present on um, a shopping channel, QVC, um, and I'm always asked that question, can you take this with supplements? Uh, and with the, with the particular range I talk about, I say yes. And the reason for that is that I know that the range has been meticulously put together. Um, we've chosen the ingredients so that they do not interact with medication at the level that we're using. Um, but there are some supplements where you do have to be careful. Take take a common supplement. I'm not a fan of it. St. John's Ward. It's used for mental health, for example. Um, and, you know, that does interact with some meds, clearly. So I would always say, do, if you're taking St. John's Wort or something like valerian to help with sleep, these are herbal remedies. You have to be very careful with meds. Um, I also think if you're taking mega doses, if you go into one of these shops and, you know, ask for a very, very high strength X, Y, or Z, you know, selenium or you know, vitamin D or whatever, again, you have to be careful. You can, I wouldn't say overdose, um, supplements won't hurt you, but they can have uh, an interaction with some medication if you have huge doses. And again, if you're shopping for supplements, don't shop for silly, huge doses. Shop for a brand which is reputable. Shop for a brand which is typically multinutrient, in my view. Then you're getting, yeah, then you're covering a lot of the bases that you're probably deficient in. And preferably, if you look at the back of pack, Look for some uh, supplements that have been manufactured, maybe in the UK, but certainly to GMP. Now, a lot of supplements um, are not controlled in terms of their manufacturing. Some of the supplements you can get from abroad, I'm not sure where they come from or how they're made. You have to be a bit careful. Yeah. But certainly uh, supplements in the UK, if they're made to GMP, that's good manufacturing practice, you can guarantee that they will have been made to a pharmaceutical standard. Okay, because um, that's important, because I, I have read um, some, well, I, actually, it, it was in a, an article by Witch magazine, and they took supplements and they measured what was in them, and what they found quite often was what was in the supplement was not what was stated on the label by a long way. Yes, and I've seen that when I was looking when I worked in sports nutrition. I was looking at some of the sports nutrition products uh, sold in the UK as well, um, and I think about twelve percent of them did not have the level of protein that they should have had. Um, but then you look at the brands, and some of the brands I'd never heard of, so they were coming from somewhere else. Certainly, if they're manufactured in the UK, I'd be 
virtually 100% confident that they would would be made exactly to label. I mean, what uh, a common criticism of supplements that I hear, which is nonsense, is there's no control of supplements. Of course, that's nonsense. We are controlled by food law. We have to operate under food law. And in terms of the labeling, the claims we make on back of a supplement pack, we have to abide uh, by very strict uh, labeling guidelines as set by EFSA, the EFSA, that's European Food Safety Authority. Um, so you cannot claim that, that a particular vitamin does something unless it's on the approved list of claims for that vitamin as laid down by the European food standards people. So vitamins and minerals are very tightly controlled in this country. Mm. Uh, they are also, I mean, it is safe to say it is a massive industry, isn't it? And lots of people are taking them. It is a pretty big industry. Yeah. I mean, the official data, I think it's about 450 million uh, in the UK. And I don't think that includes internet sales because it's not really possible to, to to really measure that. I would say that it's probably another 50% bigger easily. Um, but with the internet, I, as I keep saying, you do have to be a bit careful. You know, check that it's UK, a UK brand um, and check that it's made to GMP. That, I think they're the two th key things. And also make sure there's no mega doses. You know, if you've got something which is, you know, 100 times the RDA, you shouldn't be taking it because too much of a good thing can become toxic. Yeah. All right. So very interesting. I must admit, I came into this chat thinking, you know, let's just eat properly and uh, not bother about supplements. But I'm, you know, thinking maybe I should be looking at this a little bit. If people are coming to the same conclusion and want to find out a, a, a bit more, um, what are some good sources? I'm assuming there's probably a, a good NHS uh, website. Uh, to be honest, the... <laughs> The NHS is not a great fan of supplements. Um, they prefer a food first mentality, which is fine. Um, but the NHS will has now started to say, well, we should supplement with folic acid, obviously. Um, yeah. Certainly, if you're pregnant or just thinking about uh, becoming pregnant, certainly, you know, we should be supplementing with vitamin D. The NHS are now saying that. And I think slowly but surely, you will see more and more additional advice as we go forward. But, you know, mostly the health bodies are not very pro-supplement, to be honest. Um, and that's sad because I do think that supplementation can massively help the health and well-being of a lot of people who are simply not getting enough in their diet. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, 75% of us are not getting even the five a day. That means you're going to be missing out on a lot of vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, a lot of healthy things, because we all know that plant food is Healthy, without a doubt. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a bit of a heretic when I say that meat and milk are, are superfoods. You know, I still believe that. Though they contain things like bits of saturated fat, which are not great, um, they do contain a whole host of very uh, high-quality nutrients, which perhaps are more difficult to get in plants. Things like B12, protein, vitamin D, etc. Okay. All right. Um now, I, I, know, I know you have a, a brand which you're associated with. Is there information on, on that website? Yeah, there's, there's two websites you can go to. One is my independent website, 
which is not brand oriented, but I've written a lot of blogs and I'll probably be starting some podcasts too, um, uh, called drmaxhealth.com, drmaxhealth.com. That's DR. Um, so there's some really good stuff on there if you want to find out a bit more. Uh, so I've written on things like cholesterol, heart, uh, currently writing a blog on cancer, um, written on liver health, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you're interested in, you know, a high quality product, um, if you dial up Prime 50, just Prime 50, uh, and that is a specialist supplement range targeted uh, for each of the health areas, heart, brain, bones, uh, menopause, skin, hair, nails, uh, fatigue, um, joints, etc., then just go to Prime 50. Just Google Prime 50 or prime50.co.uk and you will be taken straight to the internet shop. Again, everything's made in the UK to GMP. Excellent. All right. So look, I, I, this this sounds like some, some good advice. So thank you very much in, uh, indeed for chatting, spending a few minutes to, to chat about that, about this. It's a pleasure, Mike, and I'll see you again hopefully sometime. I started the next section by telling Dr. Sarah Jarvis all about a present I got in the mail. Now I'm 56 and a while ago, I got a little present in the mail um, from the NHS. It was a little plastic tube and a, and a scooper. So what was that all about, Dr. Sarah? So you're absolutely right, Mike, you are 56. And in the past, you would have had to wait until you were 60 to get this. So if you're 60 to 74, living in England and registered with a GP practice, then you'll be sent a kit in the post automatically every two years. Now, there are plans to lower the age of people who receive the test to 50, in fact, by 2025. And as part of that, as you so rightly say, 56 is now the magic age. So 56 year olds are now also sent the, the test kit and it's being rolled out to 58 year olds. Now, this is an incredibly simple test and there is an incredibly important message behind it. And that message is your next poo could save your life. Bowel cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the UK. And yet almost one in three people who were sent an NHS bowel cancer screening kit last year in England didn't go on to, to complete it. I find that so sad. Yeah, well, so I, I I I opened the package with excitement. I don't get presents that often, and um, and I thought, oh, okay, this is not normal, but let's see if I can sort it out. So I I, I perform. So essentially, you kind of have to do your poo on a bit of paper and scoop a yep. bit into into the tube, um, do the top up, and send send it back to the NHS, and then. Not long afterwards, I got a little message. I can't remember exactly how. It might have been a text or... or I think it would have a... been a letter. Mine was a letter. I've oh. now outed myself as someone who has also received it, who did not put it off. I put the test kit by the loo, so I remember to do it. I, too, yeah. did my little sample. You only need a tiny, tiny sample on a plastic stick. Then you just pop the stick back into the sample bottle. You don't need to touch anything. It's quite simply, it's a plastic stick you put a tiny sample on there pop it into the sample bottle do it up tightly securely and cleanly and then send it off for free and as you so rightly so I, say I, within days you should get a, a letter saying all's good yeah so that, that's what i had but i had i must admit i had this image in my head of this poor soul somewhere in a lab receiving hundreds of these things and then having to open them and then i thought well what do they do with them what 
what do they actually check? So you're, it's a really good question. The answer is they're, they're checking for microscopic, really tiny bits of blood, which would not be visible to the naked eye. So the whole point about this is it the NHS bowel cancer screening kit detects signs of cancer before you notice anything is wrong. And the reason that is so important is that detecting bowel cancer at the earliest stages makes you up to nine times. And I repeat that nine times more likely to be successfully treated. Now, the vast majority of people are going to have the all clear. 98 out of 100 people are going to get that lovely letter which says, marvellous news, all clear, don't worry. Obviously, if you do develop symptoms in the next two years before you get your next kit, it doesn't mean you ignore them because things can happen, even if you've had the all clear and, and cancer can develop. But the whole point is, 98 out of 100 people will get it. And of those who don't, many of those, they'll be invited for further tests. And if you then go on to have further tests, such as looking at the inside of your uh, your bowel with a, a tiny, tiny flexible telescope, they can pick up cancers, but they can also pick up whether there's a non-cancerous cause like, like polyps or like piles. Now, polyps are not cancerous. They're little growths in the bowel and they can be snipped off and looked at under a microscope to make sure they're okay. And of course, if there is cancer in them, that 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 can, you know, that they could that could prevent you in the future from developing cancer if those are removed, because polyps aren't cancer, but they could develop into cancer over time. So you mentioned there, if in between these tests you do see uh symptoms, you should, you know, do something about it. So by symptoms, what what do you mean there? So the symptoms can be quite vague, but you really mustn't ignore them. So particularly if you are over 50, actually at any age, but particularly if you're over 50, because it tends to develop more commonly in later life. If you get unexplained tummy pain, if you are off your food, if you lose weight without expecting to lose weight, if you have blood in your poo or your poo is black and tarry. So literally like there's tar in there. Um, if you get and if you have a change in your bowel habit to looser, particularly to looser, but if you have any significant change for no other reason, you haven't changed your your lifestyle, haven't changed your diet, your bowel habit changes, particularly if you've got poo in it, uh, blood in it. But even if you haven't, do speak to your GP. OK, so you, you said if it's caught early, it's it's very, very treatable. And that sort of the, the screening program is, is generally a success. But is is there any sort of data? To back that up, you know, if you are unlucky enough to find some blood in your poo uh, and you get it early, what are your what are your chances? Oh, the the answer is that if it's picked up at the early stage, the chances are very good, and really importantly, the treatment is likely to be much less invasive, less much much less intense, and much less difficult to cope with. So, you know, it's not just a question of improving your survival rates. When we use the, the strap line for this campaign, which is your next boo could save your life, we also want to say it could mean that any investigations and any treatment you have will be much less invasive. Right. Um, so what is the treatment actually generally? Well, it very much depends on the type of bowel cancer. Sometimes you'll need to have um, you, you'll need to have surgery. Sometimes you'll need to have chemotherapy, sometimes radiotherapy. It all depends on what's been found okay. and how far it's spread and so on. So presumably this this big drive to get everyone to uh, send their sample back when they get it in the post is because not everyone sends it back. Yeah. Very worryingly, despite the fact that 
bowel cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the UK, despite the fact that we can hugely improve outcomes by picking up cancer early. Almost one in three people who were sent an NHS bowel cancer screening kit in, the, in England last year did not send it back. And there is, you know, there is no excuse for this. When, we, when people were surveyed, interestingly, 98% of people said it was important that, you know, it was really, really important to to um, get it, you know, to get tested for, for cancer. Nine in 10 people said they'd be likely to do the test and only 2% said that they would be unlikely to take the test. But that was a test which could help find can signs of cancer at an earlier stage when it's easier to treat. When we specifically went on and talked about the FIT test, which is what this is, this tiny sample of poo, which you collect using a plastic stick, one in five people said they'd be too embarrassed, they'd be too disgusted, or they wouldn't want to look at their poo. Well, I can tell you, ignoring it, burying your hand, head in the sand does not make it go away. And the oh. simple fact of the matter is, if you ignore it, you're going to get to the stage at some point where you can't ignore it anymore. And at that point, unfortunately, the likelihood of successful treatment is significantly lower. Yeah. It, I mean, the reason why people don't return these things, I mean, it must be more complicated than just people don't like the idea of scooping up a bit of poo and putting it in a, in a tube. And, you know, we're not all lazy. I, is, is there any... Well, I'm, I'm sure there has work been done on, you know, trying to overcome this and persuade more of us to, to return these things. Yeah, and a lot of people will say, oh, well, I just didn't get round to it. Well, it couldn't be easier. Just put it by the loo. Don't put it off. You only need one sample in the past. You need to take more than one sample. And it was a lot more complicated to do it. But actually, these days, the fit test is so simple to do. Literally, you know, the next time you do a poo, yeah, you can you can do the sample. You can send it off. You can pop it in the post, and job done. I mean, are there any differences? Kind of social differences, different socioeconomic groups, or yes. um, different unfortunately groups of very, people from different places. Yeah, very sadly, the more deprived the area you live in, the less likely you are to do it. And I think that's you know very sad because it's the same for all screening. The whole point about NHS screening generally not just NHS bowel cancer screening, but all NHS screening is it's designed to pick up cancer at an earlier stage when it's much more treatable. Of course, in the case of cervical screening, it's actually picking up changes that could turn into cancer in the future. So it's actually preventing cancer. And yet with all screening, we see people being less likely to take it up if they come from deprived areas. And sadly, those are the same areas where people have the highest risk of developing bowel cancer in the, in, in the future anyway. So right. there is a kind of real, you know, inverse law here. The more you need it effectively, the less likely you are to do it. But everybody needs it. If you're SIP 56, as I say, you'll now get it in the next two years. We're going to be rolling it out so that everybody gets it in England from the age of 50. Right. So uh, apart from trying to persuade everyone to do the test, what about trying to ensure we don't get it in the first place so are, are there any sort of sensible things we can do like, i don't know like is it like other cancers you know drink less alcohol do more yeah. exercise that sort of thing or how can you get us well you won't be surprised to hear that excess alcohol and smoking and, and avoiding smoking obviously not smoking will make a difference to you know so many types of bowel cancer but where bowel cancer is concerned it is really important to try to eat a healthy balanced diet lots of vegetables lots of fruit 
Um, and, you know, I mean, they talk about five a day, but actually these days we talk about 30 a week, 30 different kinds of fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds and so on during the course of a week. Drinking enough fluids, non-alcoholic fluids, getting regular exercise and keeping your weight within healthy limits. All of those will reduce your risk of developing bowel cancer. OK. All right. 30 different sources of food, vegetarian yeah, fruit, food. That sounds fruit. like an awful lot. It's not actually. It's amazing. I mean, I eat, since since the pandemic, I've eaten a largely plant based diet, pretty much entirely plant based diet, actually. And you know what? It is amazing. You want to be eating different fruits, different vegetables with a particular focus on vegetables rather than fruits. But nuts and seeds and pulses also count as well. And it's so easy to, you know, introduce lentils or pulses or beans you know kidney beans instead of having cottage pie put some put some kidney beans into it when you're making a stew put some cannellini beans or some some butter beans or things black black eyed beans black beans you know there are chickpeas there are so many different kinds and nuts and seeds count as well so it's really remarkably simple actually if you just start to think about that and every time you're thinking about a, a meal um, particularly whether it's a soup or a stew or something like that then just chuck a few pulses or lentils or beans into it really good for the for the for the bowels really good for your digestion really good for avoiding constipation and diverticular disease <laughs> and or and piles and all those other things but also actually really good for your pocket really really cheap tin beans count as much as any or dried beans really not difficult to do and they are an incredibly cheap source of protein by comparison to most other sources. We do know that processed meat in particular, large quantities of processed meat can increase your risk of bowel cancer. So the processed meat, what's that, things like ham, bacon? Yeah, so ham, salamis, sausages, all that sort of thing, um, bacon, all of those, eating too much of those can increase your risk of bowel cancer. So we do think that, you know, if you can replace some of that with some plant-based food, um, and it's really easy to do. You don't need to cut it out completely. You know, you could have could have what is it, veganuary, or you could go for meat free Monday. But you could also just reduce the amount of meat you're eating every other day um, by adding in some of those things which will actively help to reduce your risk of bowel cancer. Mm. Actually, I must admit, while you were going through the list of items, I was thinking, yeah, actually, these things do sound a bit cheaper. They really they do. Are. They really, really are. I know you do need quite a big store cupboard. I have to say we get through an awful lot of tins and things, but actually the dried ones don't take up too much space. No. All right. Good advice there. Now, look, if people are, are listening to this and thinking, all right, I'd like to either I haven't had this test kit. I want to see if I can get it or I just want to find out a bit more about bowel cancer. And specifically that last bit you mentioned, ways to have potentially avoid it changes in lifestyle where can people go for some good sources of information well of course the nhs website's got loads of really good information about all of these things um and if you want to find out about more bowel cancer screening then you can go on to there but you can also go on to um onto patient.info and you can look look for bowel cancer on there and that'll give you all sorts of ideas um about what you can do to improve your chances and reduce your chance of getting it Okay. All right. Look, Dr. Sarah, this is a very important topic. So thank you very much indeed for chatting. My absolute pleasure. Don't forget your next food could save your life. If you get the kit, <laughs> don't put it off, put it by the lid. That was the Relaxed Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.